Hello. Food is a big deal for me. As I get older, other sources of pleasure, like basically getting out of my head, become less enticing. Good food is still something to look forward to. But I have IBS. So there's a long list of tasty and common ingredients, principally garlic and onions, that my frail digestive system cannot handle. Eating the wrong stuff means I wake up with stomach cramps and... Yet, on those few occasions, usually on holiday when I'm sleeping well and relaxed, my body seems to be able to cope with almost anything. The restrictions of my diet also make it harder for me to eat ethically. A vegetarian diet without wheat, onions, garlic, cauliflower, peas, pulses, the list goes on, well, it's pretty bleak. One positive consequence of this is that I am the main family cook. After all, how could I ask my wife to work with such a restricted range of options? Going out, I hate being a fussy eater, and I'd rather have bad guts than be a bad customer or guest. So, it's all very difficult. But perhaps I should see my complex and challenging relationship with food as a metaphor for the complex and challenging nature of our food system as a whole. That's one message I've taken from an important new book on food, written by someone whose own food you'll almost certainly have eaten yourself. This is Bridges to the Future, the big ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Henry Dimbleby, author of a new book, Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet into Shape. Now, before I get into the book, I just want to say thank you, because I know you're no longer the owner of Leon Restaurants. But for years, when I was at the RSA, I relied on your chicken satay box. It was about the only tasty thing I could take away at lunchtime. I had it about three times a week. So thank you for that. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, we'll get into the book. Do you miss the restaurant business? I don't miss the terror of receiving sales reports three days a week and worrying about what's gone wrong. It's very interesting you should say that about Leon because one of our investors, a guy called Gavin Davis, who you presume you know, used to be an advisor to Gordon Brown and then was chairman of the BBC. And he was an early investor in Leon and he said he invested in it because he's celiac. And he said it was the only place that he could go and buy food that didn't make him feel as if he was treating himself for some kind of illness. So it's good to hear that we were a port in your particular dietary storm as well. Now, the book draws a lot on the work you did as chair of the National Food Strategy. Now, I did a review for the government and I'm currently kind of working with Patricia Hewitt, who's doing a review for the government. So I'm also fascinated by government reviews. It was a great review. You came up with some really important findings. You got a lot of profile. That's always very important. I thought you did incredibly well in publicizing it, not just at the end, but as you did the work. But yet, as you point out at the end of the book, quite a lot of the recommendations haven't gone forward. When you reflect back on the review, do you think you did everything you could, Henry, to kind of get it taken up? Well, you know, I'm sure I didn't because one never does. But I'd done one review before on school food called the School Food Plan for, actually it was commissioned by Michael Gove as well when he was at DFE. And that led to actually kind of university for free school meals, cooking come on the curriculum, quite a lot of things, but then other things didn't get put into place. But I had a really good idea of what I was getting myself in for. And there were two things I kind of did up front. One was to 
be really clear that there are two objectives. One is to change the conversation, change the way in which people understand how the system works. So you could begin to shut down kind of a potential interventions or objections to interventions that are built on forced premises. And so you need to create a narrative. And then the other thing is to try and get some policies in. And so, you know, I think in the end, we got between 30 and 40% of what we recommended in place. And that's not a bad result. But actually, the ideas are more important. And what you said in your introduction, it was really interesting. You were talking about when you're more relaxed, you know, your stomach doesn't cause you as much trouble. And the more research we did, the more I realized that we think when we eat that kind of it's an act of free will. Free will is very, very precious to us. And yet, we are all cogged to this extraordinary machine being buffeted about by our appetite, by the advertising of companies, by the environment in which we find ourselves, by stress, and that actually our free will is, is restricted in all sorts of ways. And if we want to fix the food system, both the environment, the environmental harms and the, and the harms to health that it does, government needs to accept that actually education and willpower and consumer decisions aren't going to solve the problems that we have. Yeah, no, that's fascinating, Eric, because the advice I give to people doing reviews is is very much in line with what you said, which is you need a big idea. In my case, it was the idea of good work. And then you need very concrete policies, which is hard for the government to fudge. You know, they've either got to do them or not do them. And in all of this, particularly if the review hasn't been commissioned by the Treasury, idea firms at the Treasury, you, you have to assume that most people in government can attend to think that any policy, any new policy is problematic because otherwise they'd have thought of it already. So it sounds like you kind of approached it in those terms. And I really think you did a great job. Now, I, what I want to do is to is to look at two key concepts in the book because I think they're fascinating and I'd like listeners to, to understand. The first is the notion of the junk food cycle. Tell us kind of what you mean by that, because that's at the heart of this idea you've got, that we we are in some ways the victims of a system that is surrounding us, but that we can't see. Yeah. So when the government, when Boris Johnson said that he was going to, after he'd almost died because of COVID and he blamed it on his weight, and he said he was going to restrict advertising to children and online of junk food, of food that's high in fat, sugar or salt, the Sun ran a leader that said, you know, this is absolute nonsense. We need to get out of this nanny state stuff and focus on what really works. Exercise, education, and willpower. And what we try to show in the book is that all of those things are demonstrably, provably false. So exercise, it turns out, that the way in which we spend energy is a complex system. And when we exercise, over time, our body doesn't just add the calories you burn in exercise to the calories that you burn when you're resting. It takes calories from other areas to maintain a constant output of energy. So actually, you find that very active people burn exactly the same amount of energy as people who sit around all day. They just spend it in different ways. And so, first of all, you have to get out of your head the idea that you're going to exercise your way out of obesity. It's, exercise is brilliant. It's the best prescription you could prescribe for all sorts of medicines, but it's not going to get you thin. Once you've got that out of your head, you then need to look at appetite. And appetite is an unbelievably powerful thing. If you think about, if you've ever, you know, not eaten for a day or a day and a half, and you think about how that, all you can think about is food, 
And people's appetites vary a lot. So some people naturally seek more food than others. And that appetite is particularly responsive to the profile of flavors in junk food. If you look at junk food, it actually has a mixture of sugar and salt and fat that doesn't really exist in the ratios that exist in nature. And what has happened is when we eat that food, it's more calorie dense, we eat more of it, it fills us up again less quickly, scientifically proven. And so we eat more of it. And food companies have realized that they're not evil, but you get make more money out of marketing sweets and biscuits and cakes and sugary ready meals than you do fresh vegetables. And so they put money in there, we eat more, they put money in there, we eat more, and we get sick. And until people accept that you need to break that commercial, it's called a reinforcing feedback loop. It's kind of, you know, acceleration. It's a bit like a fission reaction, which is the two things interplay and things get worse and worse. And until government accepts, it's going to have to make it commercially less attractive to sell the stuff that we crave. We're not going to solve this problem. And people who are, I write in the book, I talk about you know, people are kind of there's a kind of growing anti-fat shaming movement, particularly in the US, and they talk about, you know, healthy at any size. And actually, I'm very anti-fat shaming, but for slightly different reasons, because the junk food cycle means it just it literally isn't, on a population level, it isn't a kind of failure. It's just that they have a different appetite, and that appetite is going very badly wrong. We, we don't want them to be fat because it's unbelievably healthy to be morbidly obese but it's not their fault and government needs to intervene. And that argument, I think, the thing I'm most pleased about my book is that people are beginning to accept that argument and actually the people who are trying to knock it down are, you know, they've run out of road. That kind of absolutely the state must do nothing. I think their arguments are beginning to be exhausted. Yes, and you said the food industry isn't evil, but I think it is guilty of a kind of form of collective irresponsibility in that I think that because of the complexity of, of the kind of process, what it means is that a, you know that somebody who's a food manufacturer can say, well, look, you know, I'd much rather you know manufacture or food that was was healthy and good for the planet. But the problem is that's not where the demand is. And then the marketers and advertisers might say, well, of course we you know we'd much rather get a brief to sell healthy food, but you know that's not what we're being asked to sell. And the retail, so everybody in the end participates in this system that is damaging the planet and killing us. But everyone is able to kind of say it's not really their fault. So I think that's part of why this kind of cycle persists. On that point, it's really interesting. I mean, they literally, the people at the, head, at the heads of the supermarkets, the FMCG companies, behind the scenes, they all acknowledge it. They would literally be fired if they said that publicly. There are a few people, John Hegarty, who founded BBH, the advertising agencies, publicly said, it's just not acceptable for us to be making money advertising sweets to kids. So there are some people who are just beginning to say it, but it is, they're in that industry. If you're a kind of being grown up in a supermarket or a FNG, you know, you, you, you joined a marketing department, marketing biscuits, and you are now getting to the top of the company, you're 45, and you suddenly realize actually at a population level, a society level, what you are doing is costing, well, according to the OECD, costing the UK £74 billion a year in terms of lost productivity and direct costs. What are your options? You had to be a very brave person to walk away from that. And when you do walk away from it, someone else less responsible comes and, and does it in, in your place. But I agree, a lot of people say to me, don't let them get away with it because they know it's bad and they, they do know it's bad. 
Yeah, no, you quote John Hegesy in the book, and and I think that's a good example. The only thing that kind of slightly depresses me is we have seen over the last three or four years a succession of chief executives who have said difficult and challenging things like that get thrown out on the rear by investors who see this as all being distracting from the core purpose of maximizing shareholder value. But that's a different story. Let's turn to a second concept that I found fascinating and that I'd not come across before, because a lot of the book is about food and a lot of the book is about farming. And so tell us about the three compartment model. I found fascinating. Yes. So the problem with farming is that it has completely overtaken the world. So if you look at biodiversity destruction, forests, freshwater scarcity, aquatic life, pollution, farming is by far the biggest cause of all of those things. It's the second biggest cause of climate change. And the question is, basically, we have a problem now, which is we use our land to farm. And we now realize that we need to use it not only to farm, but to restore biodiversity, to sequester carbon, to build houses, to build solar energy plants. And governments are having to get their head around, well, you know, how do we use land more effectively? And there are there have been two schools of thinking who, as most areas these days, have been fighting like cats and dogs. One is people who talk about land sharing, which is basically a kind of organic way of farming, also known as agroecological, where you have lower yields on farms, but more wildlife, broadly speaking, fewer chemicals, more rough edges around the fields. And then you have another group who say, well, actually, no, what we need to do is land sparing. We need to turn up the dial on science and produce much more food from the same amount of land, which means we can just not farm the rest of the land, the rest of the land can go wild. And actually, it turns out that neither of those things deliver the solution you want, because if you look at biodiversity, there's a bunch of wildlife that actually has evolved to live on farms, the land sharing, but there's a bunch that also likes to live in much wilder unfarmed landscapes. And so land sharing takes up too much land. You don't have enough space left for wildlife because it's lower productivity. And land sparing, you don't have enough of that kind of rich human uh, nature living together on farms where a lot of species have evolved to live. But luckily, the way in which our landscape works, there are a lot of areas where carbon sequestration and turning the land back to nature work in the same areas which produce not that much food. So, you know, you think about the uplands, you think about some of the forested areas around the new forest. These are areas, 20% of our land produces 3% of our food. You can take some of that land out of production. That's one compartment. At the other end, you can have much higher yielding. In the end, it'll be lower input land, but higher yielding stuff, which is the second compartment. And that frees up the third compartment, which is the land sharing. So you'll have a bit of wild land, a bit of land shared, and a bit of land spared. Those are the three compartments. It's actually much more of a continuum. So, you know, you see, for example, now very high yielding farms that are also bringing ruminants back into rotations, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the fundamental idea is that you have in some areas to prioritize food production, some areas to prioritize wild land, and then some areas have the two things living together. And if you do that, you can actually have it all. You can have enough food 
you can restore biodiversity and you can get to net zero. I love this this notion, this three compartment model. I also thought, Henry, it spoke to your general approach, which is a kind of eclectic approach that we won't achieve change through one silver bullet. It's going to be a combination of different interventions that are going to to shift the equilibrium. I want to turn now in the kind of later part of our conversation to some of the things that inhibit change, but some of the things which could accelerate change. So let's start with inhibitors first. And so one is recognisable to anybody who's had to deal with Whitehall, which is the kind of lack of joining up. You know, there are a couple of examples I think of from the book. One is that even when the government was talking about industrial policy, it didn't really talk much about food, even though this is a fact that's not in your book, but, you know, interesting quiz question, which sector of the British economy is the most manufacturing activity, and it turns out to be food. Food is our main part of our manufacturing sector, but there's not, we don't often talk about food in the context of industrial policy. It's all about kind of big tech and energy and things like that. And then another example, a smaller example, is the failure to join up our food policy with our trade policy. And you're pretty kind of outspoken about the disastrous Australian trade deal that our short-lived former prime minister signed up to. That lack of joining up is a problem, isn't it? It is a problem. It's not unique, as you'll know, to the food system. So, you know, in any complex system, you have the responsibilities for regulating, for overseeing various parts of that system spread across Whitehall like like a thin layer of jam, I describe it as. So, for example, if you look at, you know, that manufacturing base, which Bayes is responsible for, the Department for Business, Energy industry, you'll have, to, you'll have to do the rest, BEIS. So they're responsible for that. It is also, because it is manufacturing, over 50% of what we eat is ultra-processed, a lot of that junk food. That is making us sick. And then if you look at the advertising, that's DCMS, another department. DEFRA has an interest with the farmers. And so you get a situation where each of the governments become actually clients for the industries they see themselves representing. So when we were to go back to the advertising restrictions, when those were happening, you had ITV lobbying through DCMS saying, we're never going to be able to produce another children's program. You had Bayes saying, no, this is going to be bad for productivity. You had Department for Health who were clearing up all the mess saying, look, if you don't do this, the NHS can absorb all taxpayers' money within 20 years. And that is a real problem. I think the one elegant way in which I've seen that be resolved was with climate change, you're on the Stern report and creating statutory targets with a kind of third party body to mark the government's homework, which is the climate change committee. And then that creates, you know, each department has their climate change targets. And even with climate change, as you know, it's unbelievably difficult. And, you know, we're not on track at the moment, but it is a problem. Now, I think it's also, in some ways, it's one of those problems that's slightly insolvable because you have to cut government some way and you're always going to create these problems. So it's more about, it's not that the fundamental problem isn't that government is not joined up, but it is a problem and you have to find a way of solving that problem. Yeah, I think it's one of the arguments for devolution is that you can actually get your arms around complex systems at a local level in a way that is impossible nationally. 100%. So absolutely. So one of the recommendations, which didn't get much publicity because the, the tax, the sugar and salt reformulation tax kind of drew all the, all the eyes, but actually 
There was a thing called the Community Eat Well program. So there are some really interesting examples around the world of systemic problems, one being diet-related disease, where you actually get communities to trial joined up responses to those. And there was one in Washington where they got people who had type 2 diabetes, obesity, and they had a kind of multi-pronged approach. So their doctor would prescribe, it sounds kind of very hokey, cookery courses, taking them around the supermarket, show them how to cook. They might need a fridge in their house so they can have fresh food. You know, really kind of looking at people in groups of hundreds rather than groups of millions. And that had a huge success. Almost everyone who went on that course lost weight and ate better. And, you know, so I think that kind of thing, letting local communities, giving them the power to try and... So I know you were talking about devolution. I'm, you know, I think it's not just on a national level. It's actually really on a... If you can see the whites of their eyes, then you can begin to think about how you can solve it. And the way you solve it will be different in Acme from Thanet, from Grimsby. And they'll find their own ways based around their communities, their institutions, their cultures. But I, I couldn't agree more. So let's look at another inhibitor, one which you already mentioned. Now, you know, there's not many things in my public life that I'm proud of, but one is that I was in number 10 when there was a big row going on about the smoking ban. And I supported that group in the cabinet that wanted the ban on smoking in public places against a small group of people in the cabinet. Actually, all the people who wanted the ban were, the champions of the ban were women and the opponents of the ban were men. But I won't name names, but I wasn't involved in the middle of that and helped the women to win. And so it would have happened sooner or later, but maybe it happened a year or two earlier. And that's what I like to say to myself. Now, you know, when that ban was introduced, there was broad support for it. If you were to say to people now, well, let's go back to the good old days where you, when you go to a restaurant or a pub, it's full of smoke, people would think you were completely crazy. And similarly, I don't think many people... Even libertarians are arguing strongly that we should reverse the sugar tax on drinks. But yet your recommendations in terms of salt and sugar, the fear of headlines and also almost the willful misinterpretation of your policy. So the, the other challenge is, you know, the public is actually willing and to accept sometimes that leaders do things. They're not sure if it's the right thing, but actually you can be confident that after a while they say that was the right thing. And yet this government has failed to do things which, which almost certainly the, the public would have quite quickly said, now that was the right thing to do. Yeah, first of all, thank you. I was trying to explain to my children the other day that every time you went on the bus, you used to come back stinking of cigarettes and the people used to smoke on planes and in restaurants and they just couldn't, couldn't even get their heads around it. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I raised some money outside government to commission... Isaac Levido, who is uh, intentionally Isaac Levido, who was the person who was credited with winning the Tories the last election. Oh, he's advising them on the next one as and, well. And he's advising on this one coming up. And when I tried to raise the money from charitable trust, they said, well, are you sure? You know, this is, what are you doing? And I said, no, no, no. We have to find a way of really understanding from the government's point of view what the implication of these policies is. And we did focus groups and we did quantitative research. And what was interesting was on the health thing and on the sugar tax, I think we're actually much closer than people realize to getting public acceptance for that kind of intervention. People are very aware at all points in the economic spectrum of what's going on and they don't like it and they don't like it for their kids. And actually support for a sugar and salt reformulation tax 
had a high net approval rating. And so I think that might be with us quite soon. You have to phrase it in the right way. You know, you know all the things you have to, you have to explain it, et cetera. There are other things such as meat and our need to eat less meat where we are miles away. So you start talking about meat in those focus groups and the kind of atmosphere would begin to crackle and immediately you'd get the, the one or two vegans or vegetarians fighting with the people. And, they, and actually, you know, the British libertarian, the English libertarian in this case, spirit is strong, but it is, it is not strong on health. But I think that, that we're ready for intervention on health because everyone can see how badly wrong it's going. Whereas the environmental stuff, and in particular, people kind of get climate change, but they don't really understand that the fact that 85% of the land that feeds us in the UK is used to rear animals or food for animals is a problem. And so I think, you know, what you did was persuade the government that the public was ready and then you do it and then suddenly they say, oh, that's gone away. It's a bit like the sugary drinks level. You know, George Osborne brought that in through the budget because he didn't have to go on right around and he, th he thought that if he'd had to write around to all his cabinet colleagues, they would have said no. But when it happened, no one complained. But I think on health, the fear is in politicians, but it is an unfounded fear. So both sides, by the way. So, you know, you see at the moment Wed Streeting and Angela Rayner trying to play to the red wall. Angela Rayner talking about, you know, I, I like beige food. What's wrong with the food that I was brought up on? And Wes Streeting, you know, kind of talking about not wanting to preach to people, which who does. But the point is, this food is killing people. And let's not fight a culture war about you know, over the red wall about the kind of horrific harm that, that our food's doing to us. Yeah, well, let's hope Labour's need to avoid being caricatured as super nannies doesn't stop them doing the right thing if and when they're in office. So those are, those are inhibitors, the kind of inevitable problem of joining up in Whitehall, the cowardice of politicians in the face of, of headlines from particularly right-centred newspapers. Let's talk about reasons for hope in the final part of our conversation, Henry. So the first is, we do think a lot more about food than we used to. When I was young, nobody thought about food, really. And we do now, and we we care, a lot more people care about ethics in food, whether that's vegetarianism or environment. But also, I think a really big thing is this the deepening awareness of the relationship between our gut and our overall well-being. That's a, a huge new area of, of science, absolutely fascinating, incredibly complex. You talk about it in the book, but I don't think that's something that's going to get back in the box. I think us thinking a lot more about food, being much more aware of food, that's here to stay. Yes. I mean, the, the last chapter in the book is called Utopia or Dystopia. Everyone comes up to me often and says, you know, oh, you know, they didn't implement all your recommendations. Bit pitying. You know, poor you. you. Spent all your time doing this. And I think, you know, this problem will at some point be fixed because the system is unsustainable. And that literally means it cannot go on like this forever. The question is how much pain we will put ourselves collectively through before we have the courage to fix it. And I think if I separate the two things, on the environmental side, because they are actually weirdly, everyone says they're connected, they're weirdly largely separate. But on the environmental side, I'm actually very positive because I think that two things. First of all, you have a real sense in the population, the importance of, understanding the importance of climate change and although biodiversity is still a bit, people don't really get it, 
people have a strong sense about restoring nature. And secondly, you can make the environmental transition without destroying a whole sector or a whole part of the economy. The meat industry will be smaller, but other than that, you could basically make that transition. So I'm quite optimistic about that, actually. I'm less optimistic about health because, in a way, I think you're right that we do care more about food and we want to put better food in us. But I think the junk food cycle is very, very strong. And I talk a bit in the, in the book about this new breed of drugs, major one being semaglutide at the moment, which is marketed as Wagovia or Azempec which in the junk food cycle, junk food cycle is an interaction between appetite and the commercial incentives of companies. And my fear is that actually we'll end up hacking the appetite. We'll end up prescribing appetite suppressing drugs in huge quantities across the population. I heard someone in DHSC yesterday talking about, could we work out how much it would cost to give 10 million people this drug in, in the UK? I feel actually that might be the route that we go down on health in the end because no one has the courage to tackle the problem of the food sector. And what you would see then is you'd see the shift of profit from junk food to drugs companies and you'd see a suppression of the problem for, you know, in the end that would cause another problem and, you know, you'd see a suppression of the problem. So it would help keep the health service on its feet. It would make, I've talked to people on these drugs, it would make them happier, less obsessed about food, less sick. But I think it's not the optimal solution. Yeah. And it takes a big pleasure out of life. I mean, you know, satisfying hunger with great food is 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 one of the joys of the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talk in the book how I, my weight's kind of oscillated about. And I had a friend and I interviewed her who's on Wagovia. She used to be, you know, unhealthily obese. She was significantly larger than I was. And she's been taking Wagovi for three years and it has completely changed her life. She's three stone lighter. She says, I just feel so great. But the most important thing to me is I suddenly realized how much time I spent worrying about food, about putting on waste, about being sick and getting heart disease and diabetes. And I just feel freed. And she said, you should try it. And I'm just like, I enjoy, I enjoy food too much. It would just like, if I couldn't, you know, I enjoy the act of cooking, I enjoy the act of eating, and I just enjoy the love and pleasure you get from preparing food for people and sharing food. So it's for me, I understand her, and I think it would be wrong to deny people these drugs if they're in that position, but it's a joyless solution to the problem. I think it's one that in the end just buries the problem for a bit longer, doesn't actually solve it, of course. Yes, in a world in which everyone's on antidepressants or appetite suppressants, it's not it's difficult well, to see Funny enough, that. that's, I mean, that's the analogy she used. So she said, you know, it's a depressing world and we put a lot of people on SSRIs. We're in an obesogenic environment. Why not solve that with drugs as well? I don't know. Why is that such a gloomy thought? I don't know. Well, look, I'm not going to talk more about technology with you because there's a, that's a lot in the book and people need to buy the book to read about it. But just to say that your view of technology, of technological fixes, as it were, everything from this appetite-suppressing drug through to new ways of making food, making meat, which don't involve killing animals. Your view is that we ought to explore these technologies, that they offer a lot of hope, but never believe that the technology on its own is the solution. It's always you know, it's part of the solution, but not everything. Can I say one little thing about technology? Actually, what I think more about technology, I think it may be part of the solution, 
But actually, I think what you've got to realize with technology is it comes for us often, like the future comes for you and you can't avoid it. And the example we give is New York in the early 20th century. And we show two pictures, one of New York in 1900 and the streets are full of horses and the next in 1913 and the streets are full of cars as one horse in the picture. And that was a 10,000 year industry that was disrupted in 13 years and a whole swathe of, of jobs, wheelwrights, ostlers, stable hands, the people clearing up the horse manure, all of those things, which a lot of them were family careers, went overnight. So the point we make about technology is, particularly on farming and alternative proteins, is whether or not you want that solution, you've got to be aware that it might come for you and prepared to think about what that means. Because we like to kind of think about disruptions as, we don't realize how violent they can be. That's the point, how quick yeah. they can happen. And I think we might be on the cusp of that with solar energy and with precision fermentation. So my final speculation, Henry, is this. That, I mean, I remember in 1996 going to see Gavin Strang, the Labour MP, who was Labour's shadow spokesman for food, fisheries, for MAF as well, I think. And he told me, proudly told me, he said, you know, our support among, Tony Blair is so amazing that our support amongst farmers has doubled. And I looked at the graph and I think it had doubled from 3% to 6%. You know, now, this is not a party political point, but there was a view, and has long been a view, that farmers are a big, small C and probably big C, conservative group of people, stuck in their ways, resistant to change. Now, I sense that is really changing. I sense that everything from the leadership of the NFU through to all the stories that one hears about Farmers trying to find ways of making money, but in a different kind of way. That farming is no longer. We, you know, Tony Blair used the phrase "forces of conservatism." I think farming felt for many years like it was a force of a conservatism, but I, I sense that's changing. Harry, do you agree? Well, certainly, the Australian trade deal's done uh, quite a lot to disillusion farmers with the Tory Party. It's interesting. So, if you look, I think that I spent a lot of time on farms and talking to farmers while doing the food strategy. The roots, I think, of that conservatism is that our farmers are definitely conservative with a small C. Their whole identity is just fused with the land that they, that they live on. And what they had wanted to do, what they had been doing, was pass that land down through generations. They're fiercely independent. We have in the UK much lower levels of cooperative farming. And it's one of the big problems, actually, in the UK is that our farmers don't generally like cooperating with one another. And so you can see how that, you know, plus the sensation of having Brussels in the Common Agricultural Policy do things to them over the periods of the Common Agricultural Policy, 76, whatever it was when it came in. You can see how that made them both big C and small C conservatives. But now you have a situation where a lot of the children don't want to take over the land. So it's a real problem now is that the families don't want to be farmers, where the days when you could just be a farmer without huge support from the state are going and people are having to work out how to diversify their businesses, what's going to become of their business and their family traditions. I think you know, you're know you seeing a lot of them are still not really thinking about it, but others are definitely, there's a sort of sea change in what politics means to them. And in particular, you know the fact that we've left the European Union we quote a, a former minister, and actually it was a Labour minister in Defra who went up to a farm in Cumbria 
and was talking in the nineties and was talking to farmers up there and, and they said, what can I do for you? And the farmers, he said, what can I do for you? And the farmers said, well, you can make sure that my grandson farms this land as my grandfather did. And, and the minister said, well, that's interesting. My grandfather was a miner. And, you know, it is an industry that is 40% of farms would go bust if it wasn't for state support. And the way that that support is given is changing. And I think people are beginning to realize that we really are at an inflection point. And when you're at an inflection point and Brexit hasn't gone as well for you as you thought it might. Not saying all farmers were Brexiteers because they they weren't. But I do think you're right that there is a kind of fundamental shift happening in the way in which farmers are thinking about politics. And then you've got this crazy thing. You've got Tim Farron, you've got the Lib Dems who are arguing to go back to the dates, the common agricultural policy and that we shouldn't be pursuing biodiversity and climate change goals. We should be paying farmers to produce food. But I think that might be just a tactical maneuver rather than a generally thought through one. Well, let's hope so. Henry, your book, Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet into Shape, is a great read. And and it led me to kind of look at things differently, everything from walking down along the river and looking out across the countryside and thinking about why the ooze is so dirty, I can't swim in it, which is a lot to do with runoff, but also how I looked into my kitchen cupboard and thought about how I might just make sure I wasn't eating too much processed food. So it's a great book, fascinating read, really interesting ideas, but but it'll kind of shape the way you look at the world as well. Henry, thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Henry Dimbleby. And indeed, I hope you've enjoyed all the conversations that I've been privileged enough to hold on Bridges to the Future over the last few years. But time moves on. I haven't been at the RSA for some time now. And naturally enough, the society, well, it's got new ideas about how it wants to use podcasts. So I wish good luck to the RSA and I'm sure it will carry on producing fantastic content. As for me, well, I've enjoyed this so much that I'm glad to say that my friends at the Forward Institute, it's a great organisation, do check out its website. Well, they've invited me to carry on having conversations with interesting thinkers interesting writers, maybe a few more leaders trying to make change happen on the ground. So I'll be working with them. And if you've enjoyed Bridges to the Future, please join me at this new podcast. It's going to be called Forward Vision. You'll be able to find it wherever you find your great podcasts. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.